You're listening to a podcast from the South China Morning Post. Right now, there's one wicked problem that unites all kinds of people around the world. Okay, fine. There's two wicked problems, but this one can't be fixed with vaccines. This is something affecting gamers using PlayStation and Nintendo consoles, people buying brand new cars, people wanting to buy the new iPhone 12, even people wanting new smart TVs or air purifiers or a whole bunch of consumer electronics. It's a tiny, very complicated piece of technology in each of these items. And the fact that there is a global shortage of them, that means production of everything from phones to game consoles to refrigerators, washing machines, as well as shiny brand new cars, has either stopped or been massively reduced. This global shortage is also bringing into sharp focus the intense competition and rivalry between China and the U.S. over access to new technology. Welcome to the latest episode of Inside China. My name is Simei Shen. I'm a reporter with the technology desk here at the South China Morning Post in Hong Kong. And in this episode, you'll hear from two of our editors, John Artman and Zhou Xin, about how we got here and what comes next. These days, we use the word semiconductors, but maybe you're more familiar with the word chips. If you're old school, maybe you're more familiar with the word microchips, or if you've got an engineering degree, maybe you say integrated circuit. Even though we're living in the year 2021, and we're so used to technology being all around us and available whenever we need it, we perhaps forget that it's really, really difficult. In fact, it's insanely complicated and hugely expensive to actually make semiconductors. There's only a couple of places in the world where they're made. And the latest, fastest, most up-to-date semiconductors are only made in one place. The global semiconductor shortage is at the center of what might be described as a perfect storm, or what people in the planning and policy business call a wicked problem. A wicked problem is one with multiple issues that interconnect, with changing requirements and many different people and opinions involved. The global chip shortage is a problem entwined with the limits of technological innovation, the economic impacts of the pandemic, U.S. sanctions on China's access to technology, as well as the 70-plus years of geopolitical struggle over the future of Taiwan. Oh, and in the last month or two, Taiwan has had to deal with its first COVID-19 outbreak as well. It's a problem. But this is not the first shortage of semiconductors to affect global supply chains. There was a shortage 10 years ago when the Fukushima earthquake damaged the Japanese manufacturing plant making chips for cars. And the last time the world had to deal with a shortage of semiconductors from Taiwan was due to something that's kind of hard to explain if you weren't there. About to be told, it's no fairy tale goose that left them, you see, but out of town critters known as Tamagotchi. If you're someone my age, you're probably wondering, what the hell is a Tamagotchi? That's a song from 1997 and something called the Tamagotchi Video Adventures. 
back then, the world went crazy for a small handheld video game that wasn't really a video game. It was a handheld digital pet that people in the U.S., Europe, and Asia went crazy about, and it was powered by a microchip made in Taiwan. But here we are in 2021, and the situation is much, much more complicated. The U.S. makes its own chips at a plant in Texas, and they make up about 12% of the global supply. But in February, massive storms took out the power and infrastructure in Texas, and some of those factories are now reporting they're four months behind on orders. At the heart of global supply is one company, the Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company (TSMC). Here's a quick background to this four-letter acronym that is so central to the world's access to technology. It was founded in 1987, more than 20 years after Intel. It employs nearly 50,000 people, and its headquarters are in Xinjiang, on Taiwan's northwest coast, looking out across the Taiwan Strait towards Fujian Province in mainland China. It's now the world's largest chip maker. Apple makes up a fifth of TSMC's total revenue, and 65% of all the chips made at TSMC are sent to the U.S., and the rest is exported to companies around the world. I've got SCMP tech editors John Artman and Joe Sin with me right now. John, so how did TSMC become the world's biggest maker of semiconductors, and how did it become what sounds like the only maker of semiconductors? Well, first of all, they're not the only maker. That's that's for sure. Uh, but they are they are what we say what we call uh, in our stories we call them the world's leading contract manufacturer of semiconductors. So how did they get here? Well, they in part uh, due to uh, industrial policy on the part of Taiwan, uh, and in part due to uh, their founder and uh, and his vision. Um, you know, Taiwan they were looking for um, an industry that they could lead in, and it turns out that semiconductors was was exactly that. Um, and TSMC uh, was in the The right place uh, at the right time, uh, and so since then they've uh, continually invested in uh, production, both in terms of uh, total co overall capacity, uh, the number of of units that they can that they can output, but then on the other hand, also investing significantly in staying ahead of of everyone else. Currently, TSMC again not only leads in in terms of overall production, but they also lead when it comes to cutting edge uh, chips. Uh, so chips that you're going to see in in smartphones and computers and some of the latest uh, devices, and they also are, are leading the field. In uh, in semiconductor research, they cooperate with universities around the world um, to to solve some of the the big big problems of how do you how do you continue to uh, create chips that are smaller and smaller and smaller and yet are also more powerful at the same time. So, what about companies like Intel? Why aren't they picking up the demand? Well, Intel doesn't make chips. Uh, Intel designs chips. They used to make chips, and there's been a lot of controversy, uh, both from within Intel um, in terms of you know people who've left and who've uh, talked publicly about it, uh, but then also um, analysts and industry watchers. You know, there was a there was a, some big questions around you know why were they doing it and whether or not it was actually the best choice. Uh, and so now they're trying to get back into uh, semiconductors uh, because the thing is with semiconductors, the amount of investment. 
you have to make to continue, to, again, to lead uh, in terms of output, but also lead in terms of cutting edge technology is significant. Uh, we're talking billions, if not trillions of dollars, initial investment uh, just to get things up and running. Uh, and so at one point, Intel decided, you know, you know what, the, the initial investment, the amount of money we have to spend to continue to grow that part of the business isn't worth it anymore. And so we're going to uh, follow the example of some other companies and only design uh, the chips. And I say only, but I mean, it's not not like it's something easy to do. Uh, and it's actually also quite profitable. Um, but what we're seeing now with the, with the chip shortage and also Intel's difficulties that they're facing in the market, they're actually looking to get back into uh, making chips themselves as well. So how did we get here? How did we get to this crisis of supply? Well, there's a lot of factors. Um, number one, I think, you know, is is on the one hand with uh, things like GPUs, for example, that that supply issue has been around for quite some time, in part because of cryptocurrencies and GPUs are, are used to uh, to mine uh, cryptocurrency. Uh, but the more recent shortages we've seen in car chips, as well as appliances um, has more to do with, on the one hand, companies like Huawei uh, stockpiling. Uh, so before the sanctions really came into effect, Huawei did their best to get as many chips as possible into their inventory so that they could continue producing smartphones. Uh, and then on the automotive side, what we saw was um, uh, car companies, they, they uh, predicted incorrectly, that uh, the demand for new cars um, would actually decrease. And so they cut uh, contracts with uh, semiconductor makers. And over time, they saw that actually demand uh, did not decrease as much as they expected. And so, and so they didn't have the inventory uh, at hand in order to actually continue producing cars to meet that demand. And semiconductor makers are like, well, guys, you know, you told us that you didn't want it. We have other clients who did want it. So we have to service them first. Uh, and then what we're seeing on kind of the uh, when it comes to appliances, a lot of these chips are actually kind of lower end chips. And so the profit margin are actually quite thin. And as I said before, uh, the investment to increase capacity is, is quite expensive. And so these companies that are producing these lower margin chips, they don't have the money to actually increase capacity. So that's one of the reasons, those are some of the, some of the reasons why, we, why we're in the middle of this crisis. Okay, that's very good. You know, John, you make a very, very good point. You know, this, uh, this change of a mentality through the value chain. You know, it starts from the right beginning. The Chinese government has been blaming the uh, U.S. starting this trade war and the sanctions against China as a reason for this uh, semiconductor supply disruption. And Beijing, to some point, get, has a point. Because, you know, in this industry, previously, there's a popular idea was just-in-time, which means you have to keep your stocks in the inventory as, uh, as small as possible. You know, you don't, you don't have to prepare a big warehouse to put all these uh, spare parts there. When you need a chip, you just to make a phone call to your suppliers. It is this kind of production. Uh, so the whole global is highly integrated in this kind of uh, supply flow. But when Washington decided, say, Huawei, you will be cut off from these technologies from this day on, this is a game changer. So everything has changed. As John just mentioned, you know, uh, Huawei has to rush to the TSMC saying, you know, before the deadline, please produce as much as chips for me possible. I need to put as much as the inventory as possible. And this has a ripple effect over the, through the whole uh, value chain. And if, if Huawei is stocking, then other people say, hold, hold on, you know, maybe I should put a little bit more stocks in my warehouse 
Maybe previously, two weeks is enough. But for now, according to my production plan, I need three months, six months, or some even have like, no plan at all. You know, as long as I can get hands on some chips, I just buy it and put it in my own warehouse. And this has been leading to, particularly leading to this uh, uh, supply uh, glitch or supply crisis of the, of the semiconductors. And this is also what Beijing called the disruption of globalized value chain. And China, on the surface, of course, is trying very hard to say that this is something that tried to be uh, avoided. But everyone in the industry knows that it's already the fact. You know, people, are, uh, governments across the world know the previous globalized value chain will get increasingly fragmented, and every country has to be prepared for this. Beijing is doing that. Washington is doing that. European is doing that. Even Singapore and Japan are starting to realize that, okay, maybe we have some backup plans. So that's where we are now. So, Josine, we have reported for years on Beijing's push to get China in front in the global race for 5G, AI, and supercomputers. Take us through what it's done for semiconductor production. Well, Shimei, in a very uh, short answer, you know, the biggest problem for China to achieving all these things is because of its lack of high-end or advanced chips. China just simply cannot make these chips to make the 5G or the uh, supercomputers working. And this is a serious problem for China. That's why you know, Xi Jinping is calling this uh, a choking problem. So he has to mobilize the whole country's resources to solve this problem. That's why we're seeing there are so many money and also incentive policies uh, from the Chinese government to encourage uh, investments in semiconductors, not only in production, but also in research and development. And now even uh, Liu He, Vice Premier Liu He, the right-hand man of uh, Xi, is looking beyond you know, the, the area after Moore's law the so-called third generation chips. So you can see that whether China can become a technology superpower is largely decided by this battle. And you can understand why you know, Beijing is putting all its resources on, onto this, this battle. Because this, this battle, China cannot afford to lose, really. Well, it's also interesting as well. I mean, as, as Joe Sheed pointed out, um, China is looking to um, get, a, get a head start on some of these uh, next generation or, or third generation uh, semiconductor technologies. Uh, but there's some big, big questions about whether or not they can actually do that. I mean, we can see that, you know, uh, starting from the reform and opening period up until now, China has been able to really capitalize on some of the uh, the best practices of um, other uh, developed economies and kind of looking at the history and how they got there. And so in a sense, China has been able to leapfrog uh, in kind of getting to, to where it is now. And there seems to be, you know, this the, a similar kind of assumption that it can leapfrog in, in these kinds of semiconductor technologies. But it's, it's not clear that they can uh, because semiconductors, they, like, like I said, on the one hand, they're very expensive to make. Uh, the leading... The leading um, the cutting edge semiconductors um, are very expensive, uh, but also the research capability as well. Um, as we've covered recently, you know, China is putting much, much more effort into developing, for example, uh, semiconductor engineering departments and and uh, schools uh, within within universities. And so, really, kind of going in at the, at like a very, very basic level in the education system in order to kind of uh, develop and create these talents. And so, you know, if we're looking at third generation. Or 
or fourth generation, for example, you know, we're still looking at a pretty long timeline, even for the latest kind of cutting edge uh, chips right now, which is three, th- two or three nanometers, very, very small. We're not actually going to see these come into uh, mainstream production for another two or three years. Uh, and so you think about now we're looking at one nanometer or even lower than one nanometer. That's going to be, you know, what, 10, 15 years. Yes. And it's not just about turning a machine. It's about having the people who know how to design microchips and operate the machines. So how does China catch up? Definitely. Um, and, and I think that's a, that's a great question to ask. I mean, we can see um, there were a few uh, Chinese semiconductor companies that were directly affected by this. And so uh, when uh, U.S. sanctions uh, came into force, these, these companies were actually, they had contracted with American companies, uh, equipment makers, um, to come and install and train their staff on, uh, on using this equipment. But when they were put on the, uh, the sanction list, the American staff, they just left. And they left all the equipment there. No one was trained. It wasn't completely installed. And so one of the issues for China, it's, you know, on the one hand, it is, you know, getting access to cutting edge equipment in order to make cutting edge technology, but it's also process knowledge. And so if even if they were to get all the equipment tomorrow, they don't necessarily have the experience, uh, the institutional experience um, in order to actually start using this equipment and, and, and building building businesses um, out of it. And so what what's actually happening um, quite often now is that Chinese companies are looking to Taiwan for talent. We can see that uh, SMIC, which which is, which is considered to be the, the champion uh, for uh, Chinese uh, semiconductor companies. It's headed by two ex-TSMC um, executives. There's a really interesting story there. I'm not sure if we have time to go into it, but this is but the what we see with SMIC is, is actually a good example of a broader trend where Chinese semiconductor companies, both on the design and the manufacture, are increasingly trying to uh, woo uh, Taiwanese engineers from the island over into uh, the mainland. I mean, one thing to, to highlight is that, you know, most of the, like Maurice Chan, these uh, pioneers, uh, Taiwanese setting up uh, chip factories in China has been educated and has been uh, trained for decades uh, uh, in, in the United States. So as you re- as they are really, you know, uh, up to the latest development. And when they return to Taiwan to start their own businesses, they have the experience and they know how to uh, manage the factories. So this is it all badly needed uh, by the mainland side. So there were talks, right? There were media reports uh, in uh, a year ago that there will be uh, headhunters uh, from mainland factories just standing at the, at the gates of the Taiwan factories and, uh, and talk to anyone who come out of the campus saying, can I double a salary and uh, please uh, you know, change a job to the mainland side? It is, this, this is something uh, finally promoted at the Taiwan side to impose some kind of uh, uh, restrictions on the headhunter activities, or you know, at least there are some uh, rules on paper saying you know, mainland mainland factories cannot come Taiwan freely just to, to poach the uh, Taiwan engineers in semiconductor. So this is a quite all quite interesting. Yes, a t- a competition for talents is also, uh, of course, a, a very important part of this uh, uh, big picture of semiconductor rivalry. So, Josin, this leads us to the relationship between Taiwan and mainland China. How does Taiwan's position as the dominant global player in chip production play into Beijing's desire to, as it says, reunite the mainland with Taiwan? Well, Shibei, that's a very tricky question. Uh, very, very tricky. Uh, because I think, to some extent, it certainly uh, raises the stakes of the uh, cross-strait tensions. I mean, if there's something happening 
uh, in the Taiwan Straits, which means it will have a big impact on the global supply chain. And possibly, you know, the uh, you know iPhone 13 or 14 will be delayed, and the people cannot get their latest uh, gadgets from uh, Amazon, these kind of applications. And also, the whole world might be, uh, the semiconductor industry might be in a kind of panic mode. But there is also one uh, perception that because uh, TSMC is so powerful and is so profitable, that it makes Beijing more, you know, willing to use whatever it takes to to attack Taiwan. That perception uh, is is misplaced. While China has a desire to develop its own capabilities, I don't think China will be so, uh, you know, eager to use military uh, means, you know, to take some uh, advanced uh, chip capabilities or take over some chip factories. So I think this kind of perception is wrong. As for how much, you know, this can will in impact Beijing thinking about overall cross Taiwan Strait, it's, uh, it's, it's very complicated, but it's certainly, I think this will be played as a, as, a, as a fact. Now, in May last year, TSMC made an announcement about a major investment in a plant in Arizona in the U.S. Uh, so, John, what does this mean? Well, I mean, it could it could mean a lot of things. Um, it could it could mean nothing. Uh, you have to remember that back in May, uh, Donald Trump was still uh, the president of the United States. Uh, it was unclear what his possibility of uh, winning re-election uh, was going to be. Uh, and so a lot of companies, uh, international and American, began to uh, make noises around uh, supporting the domestic economy. Uh, one of uh, Trump's big uh, planks in his overall uh, policy, if we, can, if we can say that about Donald Trump, is, is a, it was about uh, boosting the domestic economy through uh, you know, getting manufacturing uh, back into uh, the country. And so with uh, TSMC in Arizona, that's, that's, that's certainly part of it. Uh, but also for TSMC, that, that could potentially get them closer uh, to uh, clients uh, based in the United States. And it could, it could help them deal with any other uh, geopolitical complexity uh, that, might, uh, that might come up in the future. Now, again, with semiconductors, it takes a lot of money and it takes a lot of time uh, to get these things up and running. As we saw, uh, you know, with the Foxconn plant um, in Wisconsin, if I remember correctly, nothing ever really happened with that. And in, and in part, that was in a certain almost a political thing as well. Uh, and so with TSMC, I think that there still are some questions about what's going to happen um, in Arizona. And at this point, it's not exactly clear. Now, we've already heard about the global supply of new cars, game consoles like PlayStations and Nintendos being interrupted by this supply crisis. John, how does this get resolved? And when does this get resolved? Well, that's a difficult question to, uh, to answer. Uh, a lot of different analysts and research firms uh, are saying... Saying they're saying some things uh, about this, it's hard to really kind of judge how confident they are. But basically, it seems right now that we're looking at the end of this year, maybe you know going into June of of next year. Uh, but again, I mean, you know, supply chain for semiconductors, it's not very elastic. As Josine mentioned before, everything previously was just in time, and so you know it was very deadline driven. Okay, so now someone needs this now. Okay, fine. So now someone needs this now. Okay, fine. 
Um, but with the current uh, geopolitical complexities, as well as uh, how the shape of demand has changed, uh, these these uh, semiconductor makers uh, were not ready for it. And the supply chain in general is going to take quite a while to actually adapt and 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 reshape um, to to meet this changing uh, this change landscape. Um, so you know again. I mean, the earliest is, is at the end of this year. Uh, the uh, the latest maybe is uh, middle of next year. But to be honest, I, I wouldn't be surprised if it if it lasted longer than that. John Josin, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Thank you. There's a lot happening in and around this story, and you can rest assured my colleagues and I on the tech desk here at the South China Morning Post will be covering it every step of the way. You'll see the latest news and the best analysis on our website at scmp.com. We've also got a weekly newsletter you can sign up to. But for now, that's all for this week's episode of Inside China. I'm Simation. Stay safe, stay tuned, and we'll be with you again next week. As critical news stories emerging from China continue to shape lives and business around the world, the weekly SCMP Global Impact Newsletter brings you expert analyses and insights on the economics of COVID-19, society, technology, and the environment. Sign up to receive your weekly email at scmp.com/newsletters.